Welcome to Words and Whiskey Short Pours, a monthly podcast where we have a fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them, all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross. And my name is PJ. And we are here today to talk about the first entry in the Cosmere in Brandon Sanderson's first published work, Elantris. We're going to be talking about the 10th anniversary edition because it's the one that's most readily available. It has some pretty decent rewrites and adjustments to language. It feels like the best way to talk about it, the best copy of the book in existence. So we're going to be talking about that one. Yes, I agree. It is the best version of the book. I am well aware of all the differences and all the changes that are made between all of the editions. And... (laughs) This one's the best. This this one is the best for all of those reasons, as PJ stated. So much the best that this is the edition that Crossland bought for me. It is, in fact, a, a, a book that I did gift you after you had finished reading the book because I accidentally ordered it to my house. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Unintentionally, I brought it to you when I was in at your place earlier this month at this point, mm-hmm. you know, less than a week ago. So. And it's that soon. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was at your place on Sunday, so. Yep. Yeah, Sunday morning, and then I went to Neil's. Yeah, anyway, yeah, it's been it's been a week. We'd originally planned on doing this one in person. That was the plan, and then instead we got distracted, distracted by hanging out and having a good time, and we watched a full, you know, season of a comedy TV show that we just spent a couple of hours talking about, Total Forgiveness. That'll be up on PJ's Symposium of Media and Whimsy, coming to your ears soon if you aren't a Patreon member. If you are a Patreon member, you have access to that by now, or right around now, so you should be able to go listen to that episode. But these two are recorded back-to-back, and part of the reason we did that one is because we watched that show and wanted to fucking talk about it, and it was a good time. And we did. That said, before we get into talking about this book too much here... I want to first talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having in our second recorded show of the day? So I'm not doing a cocktail again. Instead, I am doing a beer that is a collaboration between two very well-known breweries in the area. Very great prestige. Toppling Goliath out of Decorah, Iowa and Blackstack out of St. Paul, Minnesota. So it is called Suds and Buds. It is a triple India Pale Ale with Citra, Ruwaka, and Cryopop hops. Hmm. So. Tasty? What's it taste like? Honestly, it doesn't taste as hazy. Like, it it doesn't taste as much like a hazy as you would expect. Sure. It has a little bit more of a bite, and it's a triple IPA. It's like 10%, so it's got a little bit more backbone to it, a little bit more of a malt backbone to it. So it, it... is reminiscent of like a very hoppy barley wine, kind of like Dogfish Head 120 with a little bit less of a bite. So like somewhere between a hazy IPA and like a really high octane hoppy barley wine, Hmm. if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. Mm -hmm. That does make sense. Sounds good. Yeah. What about you? What are you drinking? Well, PJ, on the last episode, I, and by last episode, I mean the symposium, I made myself a Manhattan and I was talking about drinking a different cocktail later. And instead, I was so absorbed in the conversation around total forgiveness that I did not finish my drink. I didn't even get close. I didn't even drink half. I maybe had two sips. So I still have the Manhattan of which I refreshed and made cold again with more ice and then you know give it the stir and pour it off the ice during our little break between episodes. So I'm going to finish that <laughs> on this show. And then on top of that, to follow it up, I have a 
and It's Tiki Time, which is a sour ale brewed with natural flavors. It's kind of a smoothie sour, 5% alcohol by volume. So it's rel- relatively low AB comparatively, especially for smoothie sours. I feel like they go up to like six or seven on average. Not super boozy, but a little bit more. They can, uh, yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm very excited. I've had this before. It kind of tastes like a mastodon, but with carbonation, which is interesting. Good. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of those at your place. We uh, had maybe too many of those at my place. We had three of those, which was too many at your place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or four. Very There's good so cocktail, much booze though. that goes into those, Crossland. It's true. PJ, we killed seven bottles, I think, over the course of the week. Just in Mastodon's Crossland, between <laughs> you and I and a few of my, like, a few of our friends that came over, I killed, or I very nearly killed an entire bottle of Buffalo Trace. Wow. Because that was new. Yeah. <laughs> and that was in the Mastodon's. Holy shit. Yeah, we, I mean, we had, like I said, I think we had three, but in total, there were two nights where it was just you and I, we made a... The funny, okay, this is kind of a funny story, but when we were there, there was that double cocktail, right? You you recall, I think it was the double <laughs> naked ape, I think is what you were making. Yep. And uh, that ended up being, you were, you were making like one and a half. And I was like, why not just make it a double? And you went, sure. And what I didn't realize is that you're making it one and a half for each of us versus just doubling the full cocktail, which is what I thought. Yeah, you thought, you thought we were making like three quarters each. Yes, because you thought I was, was like, Hitting the brakes a little out. bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I was like, what are you doing? Double it. And you're like, oh, okay. And that's when, that was our Galaga night. So yep. Yep. <laughs> it was a good time. But yeah, that, that, was, would, that would got me giggling. We had to work the next morning. We did. You had to work a lot earlier than I did. Mm-hmm. You went to bed at 3 and woke up at 5.30. And <laughs> I went to bed at 3 and woke up at 7. Yeah. I decided to go to work a little bit later than that that day. Yeah. Usually I'm there at six. I was there at seven, (laughs) which meant, I mean, doesn't matter. All it meant is I worked later that day. So. Right. Good. It was very funny. Needless to say, we had a good time doing our usual drunk Galaga sessions, but we did go through quite a bit of booze. That said, it sounds like we drank a ton that week. Seven bottle kills of mostly empty bottles. Yeah, they were. Like a drink yeah. left in each of them. So, mm-hmm. right. It was, we killed five bottles in that first night and that was between three drinks, maybe between the two of us or, and this double that we're talking I about. I think, yeah. I think we killed like three or four bottles in like one drink. Yeah. Like, yeah. They were all, they were all pretty close. There was that little it, left. It makes us sound way more badass and alky at the same time. So I just want to clarify mm-hmm. that it wasn't that we were drinking so much that we went through five bottles. It was, that they were very close and we just happened to be making the bottle kill drinks with them. Yep. That said, we did go through all that Buffalo trace, which was crazy, but that was between eight people at yeah. one point. Yeah. So it's not that bad, so, but right. I was looking forward Expensive. to sipping on that yeah. bottle for a while. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay. I went into tangent zone felt kind of necessary, but first up while talking about this book, Elantris by Brandon Sanderson, First thing I want to do here is read the book summary for any of the for those of you of whom maybe need a refresher and kind of what we'll be talking about and things like that. Then we'll go into general thoughts and then we'll kind of go into full full breakdown. We'll kind of be the spread of the episode. We'll end this with kind of the Cosmere talk, the Cosmere conversation, and that'll be the game plan. Perfect. Cool. All right. So with that. Our summary here. 
Elantris was the capital of Aralon. Fucking shit. Elantris was the capital of Aralon. Gigantic, beautiful, literally radiant, filled with the benevolent beings who use their powerful magic abilities for the benefit of all. Yet each of these demigods was once an ordinary person until touched by the mysterious transforming power of the Sheod. Ten years later, without warning, the magic failed. Elantrians became wizened, leper-like, powerless creatures, and Elantris itself dark, filthy, and crumbling. Aralon's new capital, Kai, crouches in the shadow of Elantris. Princess Serini of Teod arrives for a marriage of state with the crown prince of Rayoden, hoping, based on their correspondence, to also find love. She finds instead that Rayoden has died, and she is considered his widow. Both Teod and Aralon are under threat as the last remaining holdouts against the imperial ambitions of the ruthless religious fanatics of Fjordel. So Serini decides to use her new status to counter the machinations of Hraithan, a Fjordelian high priest who has come to Kai to convert Erlon and claim it for his emperor and his god. But neither Serini nor Hraithan suspect the truth about Prince Raoden. Stricken by the same curse that ruined Elantris, Raoden was secretly exiled by his father to the Dark City. His struggle to help the wretches trapped there begins a new series of events that will bring hope to Erlon and perhaps reveal the secret of Elantris itself. There's a lot of mm-hmm. fantasy names in there. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's rein it in a little bit, man. <laughs> let's okay. Let's, let's talk about overall thoughts. <laughs> I think your first point is also my first point, which is I originally was listening to this in audiobook format and I didn't have a physical copy and there are so many terms. This is the definition of like fantasy hit with that fantasy dictionary to, to kind of bring you to understanding and it can be complicated, because they also all follow similar cadence. And that's because at the same time, the language is so important to the series and the magic in particular. So I can understand why at the same time, those same like Teod, Sheod, Ho, you know, like all of those and Rayodin himself, even all of those kind of combined to be this very, I don't know. It gives me almost a tenuous grasp on what's happening in different moments because I'm trying to keep track of of names, terms and whatnot. It's so much easier looking at the book and like looking at the physical words because they do look different and you can distinguish Mm -hmm. them that way. But not having that physical text in front of you, like even Rayodon, Rayodon and Rayodon. uh, Yeah. Iodon or Galadon. (laughs) <laughs> no, there's there's another one. I mean, even Raithen. Raithen. Yeah. In audiobook format, feels like an R mm-hmm. instead of an HR, because the H is basically silent most of the time. So, like, the names get really kind of wishy-washy and confusing, especially just jumping in, not at, like, a chapter break or something. So you don't know what perspective you're in at the moment. It's like... Where are we? The the Sheod versus the Rayod, I still am not super clear on that whole... The Sheod is the choosing, right? So the Sheod is being chosen to be an Elantrian. The, the Rayod is the degradation that happened to turn them into like zombie-like dead creatures. So that's okay. the disease, which was the the fracturing when the when the aeons were then wrong. But to your point, I just had to say three words to try to explain, like three fantasy words to try to explain <laughs> where we're at. 
the difference between two yeah terms that words. are very close <laughs> yeah right yep mm-hmm. yep yep i mean there's there's very good reason for it and it it is such a well set up system and like society where it makes sense it totally makes sense but i was not prepared for it in audiobook format mm-hmm. and do you think it could have been done more tactfully like reining it in in any way do you think that would have been possible or do you think it's just kind of the nature of the story that was being told that requires it to be like that the biggest way that this could be changed or altered or helped would involve some fundamental shifts to the magic code and kind of the way that that was working like the the idea of aeons and the language i think would just need some adjustment and i think it was probably too late to do when it was getting closer to publication it was it's i mean it's an understandable book you can get it it's just a little bit confusing and takes a little bit more time the biggest thing that i think could have been fixed in editing is the entirety of the names of the court of men that surround Serene and Kain, because it is almost impossible to keep them apart in my head. I Despite can't. all of the the names and everything else, it was just very difficult to juggle those names in particular. Yeah, I'm with you. Totally. That said, those are my biggest gripes about the entire story right there that we just got out of the way. Very hard to keep track of that. It is. It does feel like a first book, and in that, it feels better than many's first books. Better than Mistborn. It does, doesn't it? Isn't that weird? Yeah. Do you think? Do you think Mistborn was written before this? No, this was written before Mistborn was. I know it was published before. It was written before. As it was well. also written before. Yeah. He's okay. he's talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I think it's a difference in storytelling, right? Because is. this is written. Part of the reason that I think that this is a little bit better constructed than Mistborn is, is just on the basis of the rotating chapters. Like this idea of being written in a triad format that's followed almost until the end where we see jumping from perspective to perspective. So the story weaves itself better than through a kind of almost roughshod when it's convenient changing of narrative point of view that happens in Mistborn. So the structure makes it predictable in a, in a way that is satisfactory to my brain hole. Yeah. Even if it's not as, even if the like language isn't strictly as good or like the approach to the story isn't strictly as good. This is a more enjoyable read to me than Mistborn was. So this feels so much like even comparatively, like comparatively to later parts in the Mistborn trilogy where you're dealing with a much grander scale of like statecraft and and government this feels grander also true there's something to be said about the ease of writing a single book and containing that all in one story versus turning it into an arching narrative right and i i do i think i agree with you there i think that by the time we finish the hero of ages you may come to slightly different conclusions. This is weird because originally my plan was to not read this until we were done. However, it slots in very well to our overall programming to do it now. So it was just kind of a, this is what we need to do because we have other things lined up for, you know, later in the year. Because I didn't want to read this until we were completely done with the trilogy because I think the end of the trilogy will also help evaluate the rest of the story, you know, as the whole thing comes to a conclusion versus this is just one book. And so you get something very satisfactory through the way that the stakes are laid just for a single story, even. Mm -hmm. That's fair. I got a much more 
political fantasy kind of traditional mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings esque vibe off of this book, which I I enjoyed. And I guess Lord of the Rings in in more of the like later later parts, Two Towers and Return of the King kind of sections where you're dealing with leading armies and and like political mo- movements and stuff like that. Just grand things. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that what I found so fascinating about my first trip through Elantris and the second one as well is it feels like an incredible combination of sci-fi and fantasy. It feels like it blends those genres very well. Elantris feels like this futuristic city almost. The Seons feel like this artifice of the future as well. And then there's also a lot of the familiar fantasy trappings. Like there's this blend of magic as technology that feels really great. And then there's also the kind of like you're saying, the Lord of the Rings-esque political stories, which I feel like is really well done. I feel like the the kingdom aspect, the religion aspect, there, there are a lot of things that I, I definitely want to get into individually to talk about and break down a little bit more. But yeah, I, I totally see that comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, any other like overarching thoughts you wanted to you wanted to get off, get off the chest or thought process? This makes me rethink a lot about Mistborn. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, like, our conversation with Lindsay about the book as a whole and the place that Brandon Sanderson was as a writer writing about women and in their perspectives. Because Serena's, Serini's perspective feels so much more complete in that, like, in the respect of, like, it feels so much more realistic and and fleshed out in womanhood than Vince did. And I attributed it to a lack of experience in writing, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it was just more of a maybe uncertainty of where Vin was, or maybe it was just Vin's character as a whole being kind of lost. I would go with the latter yeah. to the point of what you're saying. I think it's more the latter. The The one thing that we haven't really touched on as an overall thought about this book is two out of our three characters don't have a crazy amount of growth that they go through over the course of the story. Serini sees some growth and experience and feels like a, a complete character that we enter into and then start to negotiate these politics. And I don't think grows a whole lot as a character. Still love her and oh. think that she's a great lens throughout the story. But compared to Vin in that way, Vin is growing, changing, and has kind of an empty voice almost at at the beginning of Mistborn and then begins to kind of grow and change. I agree with you there. I think the point of growth for Serini is external in that she brings she brings mm-hmm. fresh perspective to the women of the court, for example. Right. And, and sort of is a champion of women's rights and women's like place within the, within the society that previously was kind of overlooked. So yeah, she still has a promise and a payoff. Like she still gets an arc. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I just don't think she changes monumentally. Like you said, Correct. external growth is the, is the thing like she, and I think Rayoden is kind of in a similar way. Like he doesn't change a whole lot outside of maybe understanding a little bit more of the plight, but he was already as described kind of the, the like emotional king the the one who is there who's going to be there for the people that that was kind of his pitch on the front end 
and that doesn't really change. We just get to see him embody that. Raythan, however, does it. have a journey. Yeah, he does get to prove it. Yeah, he gets to prove that his place and his, his position as that figure mm-hmm. wasn't inherited, but was entirely earned because he earned right. it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He he did he did make himself the viable leader a second time in a in a very real and satisfying way. And Raythan does ex- Yeah, from from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And Raythan does experience growth in throughout his entire character arc. Like he is almost a show stealer in his own right for me and my read through because of what he goes through. Yeah. I think the other one that you could make an argument for, and and maybe it's a little bit more shaded and le- less in the, in the forefront of the story, but Iodon. I feel Iodon like Iodon does get- make some changes. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying King Iodon, right? Not yeah. Galadon. Okay. King Iodon. I guess I, maybe it's less, growth and more understanding what he's caught up in yeah yeah and admitting like it's i think it's more of an admittance of insecurity of which you don't really understand at first and said at the very beginning you just think he is a dick and he definitely still is a dick very clearly as well becomes we'll more of, of a dick elaborate yeah it becomes, becomes a murderous dick, kidnapping culty dick yeah <laughs> in an attempt to it's very it's very fascinating and we'll definitely talk about that more but yeah, I, I think overall, this was a shockingly satisfactory book to me. I expected it to be a step backwards. Going from reading the Mistborn trilogy first and then to reading this, I think I read this second. Maybe I read it after I read Warbreak, which is another standalone Cosmere novel. I really liked it all around. I, I was I was pleasantly surprised. I love this book. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if I had read, like if I had read this book now, not mm-hmm. knowing that it was Brandon Sanderson, the, like not knowing it was the same author as Mistborn. I don't know if I would have pegged it. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if I, I would have said, yeah, this has the same voice as the author. It, it feels very different, but not in a way that is like negative towards either of them. It just feels different. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that. I think that that makes sense. I, I definitely feel that even outside of the Mistborn trilogy itself, the Mistborn trilogy itself has a different voice to me than other books. And we'll get there as we continue through Brandon Sanderson's cosmology, the Cosmere on a whole, but even era two, I'm, I'm very excited to read more. I'm glad you really like this one. This was the book that actually swung me. I, I really like the way that the original Mistborn trilogy ends. I like era two. This was the book where I was like, and Warbreaker. Those were the books where I was like, okay, there's so much more here that I actually like really want to sink my teeth into. So mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to feed these to you before we got too far in one direction. But, you know, I just wanted to. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Cool. All right. So there are some general thoughts to kind of give you give you those those to go off of. I'll try to focus in on as much on just the story itself and then we'll save any other Mistborn talk for kind of the the end as we talk about overall Cosmere ish adjacent stuff so want to take a second here we already started talking about the wonderful perspectives and the sort of triad that we rotate between but we've got our three characters Rayodin, the son of king iodon again keeping those names similar enough and almost rhymey i think is kind of a mistake <laughs> we follow that up with sereni who is the betrothed to Rayodin and subsequently widowed when he is taken by the sheod and turned into an elantrian 
And finally, we have Horathan, a Fjordelish, Fjordelian <laughs> priest sent to convert people to the Shu Dareth faith. And I think that makes for a really interesting story. We, were, we already started talking about these characters being, you know, fascinating points. And while they don't all experience profound change, I do think that they make for really interesting perspectives to inhabit. I don't feel like any time is wasted. In some no. perspectives, <laughs> no time is wasted at all. Yeah, this so much happens in this book, and it, it. I think that's why you can't get a whole lot of individual change and growth, mm-hmm. because there's just so much happening, and it feel it all feels necessary, and I I think. Are there any authors that publish their first book and it's like 800 pages long? Rarely. Very I feel like this could have been. Yeah, probably. But nobody would have bought it. That's why people don't publish 800 long, 800 page long first books for the record. But it could have used it. There are a handful of exceptions. It totally could have used it. And I would have loved it. I would have eaten up every fucking word. I will let you in on a little secret that this is supposed to be a trilogy. Not that the story itself is, but that there will be two more books to round out a trilogy. Okay, awesome. So this is not the end of the world as we've kind of experienced it. But that's not... We're not going to cover them on the podcast for quite some time, like maybe 2030 if we were to continue doing the show at that point, because he's got another Mistborn trilogy he wants to get out before he does Elantris 2 and 3. Makes sense. Knowing Brandon Sanderson's writing a little bit at at this point, Mm -hmm. I fully believe he had a whole lot of stuff planned out while he was writing this and before he was writing this. So I'm approaching this book like a pilot episode. (laughs) Of a TV show. I think that's the best way to think about it is that maybe the format's a little bit different than what you ultimately want your stories to be like, but you need something to sell it right away. That's a great point. That's a great metaphor for how to approach this. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as you approach this entire idea of the Cosmere. I think that this is, that's a great pitch is this being like a pilot, right? And one of the things that he did in the revisions is made the things that he intended to be connections a little bit more obvious. So he brought them to the forefront and, you know, intentionally renamed certain things to make them more direct and to kind of push it a little bit more in that direction. So that, that was kind of an aim with this addition. Yeah. Trying to think about things that I can say. I know he, in in this book, it sets up the Cosmere, so to speak, in, in mm-hmm. that it mentions several planets. Mm-hmm. Scadriel being the one that we obviously know from Mistborn. What was the name of this one, and what was the other one mentioned? Cell, and I think Nalthus. Okay. This is Cell? Yes. And Nalthus is something completely different that I'm not familiar with yet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Now, something that I want to point you towards, because if you picked up on those names, they're definitely in the Ars Arcanum. The Ars Arcanum are secretly... Okay. I think that they're mentioned outside of that, but 
The Ars Arcanum are secretly kind of important, and I haven't made a big deal out of it. Just curious if you would ever flip through them, but this is the first book that I feels... am scared to read things outside of the text itself, Crossland. It is the text itself. That's the funny thing, PJ. You can't read it until you're at the end, but it is actually okay. in world text, and that's gotcha. why it's Good Ars Arcanum. And there is a perspective that is writing all of those as a sort of magic Bible. Interesting. Good to know. Yeah. All -hmm. right. Yeah. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm skittish. I'm skittish of spoilers. I understand. I understand. I understand. And that's why I was kind of letting that happen naturally if it was going to happen. Now that we're in a separate book, it feels necessary to point it out that there's a reason that these are all named the same thing at the end of these books, and that's because they're shared. So. Okay. I was going to save that for Cosmere related stuff, but you brought it up right now. So here we are. Now we're talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of derailing the entire like chronological plan for the episode. I mean, we just didn't want to spoil people if they hadn't read other things. So I don't feel like it's spoilery to, you know, talk about the Ars Arcanum at the back of this book, because obviously I don't think it's spoilery for you for me to talk about it right now. So I'm kind of judging and gating based on that. I'm going to try to put a pin in this and say we'll talk about it more at the end. But to your point, this is like a pilot. And I think that that's a great way to pitch it. And in the same way, I think it's important to think about the first Mistborn book as also a pilot in case people didn't pick up this book. As he writes in the postscript, he sold 400 copies in like the first two weeks or week or something like that. So very low and didn't have high expectations, but his agent was very happy with those numbers and like saw growth and potential. So I think that it's important to to recognize that, you know, small things bloom into big things. And as such, doubling down on the Cosmere has made him one of the most successful living authors working right now. Yeah. So how does he how does he stack up? Not bad. Well, can you can you clarify his? I guess in the age of novels. So not not talking about like Homer, for example, or like classical authors like that but but talking about let's just say anything from 1900 onward or is it would it be more fair to put like 1800 onward trying to find a good list here to give us give us something i i feel like most of the most successful authors of all time are kind of living right now You've got J.K. Rowling. Tolkien would be the the exception to that, like the very, very obvious exception to that in modern literature. J.R. Martin. I know I know there's more. So but charting wise, I, I, I know some I've got some good generals that I can give. I know that Tolkien, I think, is number one or number two with Rowling of all time. And Rowling is firmly number two and top-selling fantasy author living, followed shortly by depending on who's quantifying fantasy versus sci-fi fantasy, which includes horror generally, in which case you slot Stephen King in at third. If you don't, you slot in Terry Pratchett and you keep it just strictly fantasy as number three. And then I'm pretty sure you slot in... No, Pratchett passed away in the mid-2000s. I want to say like 08... Row nine, something like that. Then you slot in the Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan, followed quickly 
by Sanderson. And part of that reason is because some, uh, I don't want to, I'm not disparaging Sanderson at all, but he had a natural in with an audience when he was given the chance to finish the wheel of time. And so a lot of people of whom were bought into Robert Jordan's works then transitioned into reading Sanderson's works if they like the way that it ended and whatnot. Historically, I've stated that I did not like the way the Wheel of Time ended myself or the way that it was written because it felt like a big departure from Jordan's writing style. But that said, if a lot you, of people liked it. If you reapproached it now, because that I was your would first have a experience opinion, with opinion. Sanderson, right? Yeah. Do you think you would, your opinion would change? I think I was also a hoity teen at the time and a 19 year old. I think when the final book came out, uh, was 2013. And so I think I have changed and grown in my ability to parse things and opinions about things quite a bit. And so I would say that I would probably feel a little bit differently. I have debated doing a reread of the series. It is just a big commitment considering it's 14 books and it is the longest published series of all time. Page count wise. I think it takes over 30 days of audiobook listening to get through the series. So longer than it is the longest published series. I'm trying to think of like a stupid example. It is the uh, stupid example. No, but like (laughs) uh, the Hardy boys. Yeah. The The Hardy boys are small or whatever. Yeah. They're small books. They're nothing yeah, but there's like three thousand of them. You're you're talking like Encyclopedia Brown, seven hundred page books. <laughs> or how how many books of Sherlock Holmes are there? Like thirteen, but most of them are short okay. stories, technically or novellas, technically. Gotcha. I'm yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. My That's my crazy. point being is that Brandon Sanderson, I think, inherits like fourth or fifth place right now, and he's arguably maybe half, hopefully, halfway through his career. So, you know, I mean, chances are good. The guy has the most successful Kickstarter of all time. He's the highest independent publisher, bookseller, I think, of all time. So I I don't think it's a question of if. I think it's just a question of when he crosses that threshold. I think that, technically speaking, there there will be few authors that have the same lasting impact that Sanderson does in fiction, for a long time there's an argument that he's probably one of the most impact he's definitely one of the most impactful authors still working today it's awesome so yeah crazy it's absolutely crazy well Something. i like his stuff yeah i think me he, too i i think he's got a chance <laughs> i you know i i think i i think i said this the other day i can't remember if it was just someone talking to me about the books or, or whatnot but i i equated the Mistborn series kind of has this sort of, and it, I don't, I don't fully agree with this, but it's the closest I've came to analogy. It's almost like candy. It tastes good. It feels good. It leaves me with a lot of kind of long-term thoughts about kind of wanting it. But sometimes when I go back to it, it's a little bit unsatisfactory or a little bit too saccharine. If that makes sense, I yeah. still really like it, and I'm still very excited to finish it. But that's that's sort of the taste that I get left in my mouth. The rest of the stuff post that series, like even Elantris, Warbreaker, everything else don't leave me with that saccharine feeling necessarily. And so I, I like it. I can't, I can't point to exactly why I feel that way about Mistborn, but to your point on the first book, even comparing these, it's just, it's different in a weird way. And I don't know precisely what it is. I'm not positive, And I obviously have way less exposure than you do to the rest of his works. But 
Mistborn feels so much more superhero-y in the way that they address the magic system and our focus on the magic system and its users. We, we're we experiencing the super exceptional as opposed to being kind of in the midst of this system and like learning it tangentially and learning like how the world works around the system. We're learning the system and these superheroes that operate in it. I think that's a good point is that we are very grounded in those perspectives in the superhero perspectives. And we rarely experience perspective outside of those, which is another difference between hero of ages and well of ascension, right? Even if you just think of Ellen is we lose our kind of our, our mundane between the two books. Yeah. The, mon- the mundane, even point. spook. Yeah. Even, even spook, right. Even though he's a 10, eye, he still has a sort of mundanity about him and now he's made kind of exceptional in his own right. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time talking about yep. Mistborn because we can okay. definitely do that for a long time. And we do that weekly. If you're listening to this episode, instead of one of our regular ones, we are currently in the midst never of heard down era one of the show words and whiskey, <laughs> our regular weekly show. Our normal um, show. show. You should go check that one out. Yeah. That's how you hear about this show. <laughs> it could, it could be vice versa. You never know. That I'm could gonna, be I'm super gonna, cool. I'm not going to put that evil on people. On me. Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll address this. Is it fair to address Elantris in? Not until we're done with the trilogy. Okay. Deal. In we, I'm not cool with vice versa until we're done with the trilogy. Then we can maybe do like a Cosmere bonus episode and talk about our net feelings between the books. And we can do that maybe at the end of each book going forward. We'll figure it out. We'll do something like that. I'll get to feel like Crossland knowing things that other people don't know while I'm talking about it. (laughs) You pretend as though I was not sitting in each of our episodes in the first Mistborn book, having not finished a couple of books in this series, having people like poke at me and be like, well, do you know what that means? And I was like, well, no, I don't leave me alone. I got to finish these books. (laughs) Now I'm finally done. So even I was getting played inside of our own story structure by some of our listeners. So thanks, cuz, for instance. Love you, cuz. Keep giving him shit. Yeah, right, right. We'll give him some shit. He deserves that. I feel like we were talking about these characters and what what made them so good. And I want to kind of cut back to talking about the other two, because I think we started on Sereni and why her story was fascinating and why the political machinations are really interesting. But I want to make sure that we don't skip over Rayodin, who's kind of stuck with this disease and stuck in this kind of unknown city that is in and of itself a character, as well as Horathan, who is this priest. I overpronounce the H. I think it's like a subtle H, like a Horathan, Horathan, like it's very subtle, but it's there. It's not completely silent. I want to say the audiobooks like even overpronounces the inner vowels and it's like Raytheon almost. I think it's Raythan. And maybe it's maybe it sounds differently at 2x, but 3x. <laughs> 3 you I can't believe you're a monster. You can That's finish why the you book still in like, No, this is on yours. I don't I don't own this book. This is on Audible. Does it? No, oh, I, I didn't think they went above 2x. No, you can go up to like 5, I think. <laughs> oh, that's wild. You can do 3.5, yeah. Shit, all right. Yep. I can't do faster than 1.5 myself, but we've talked about that. We have. It means that I can re-listen to a lot of this book. 
That's fair. But I like honestly, listening at three X is very much like listening at two X for other books. That I've that's read. a great point. If there's a different general complaint in the fact that this is a first book, it does feel like a lot of things are explained and maybe a little bit overwordy at times. Oh, um, I meant like just the audio extra sentences. The audiobook narrator is slow. Mm. I didn't feel like it was slow. I felt like there were some wasted sentences, but I didn't like. My problem was is that I couldn't imagine cutting them without rewriting the paragraph to try to say the same thing, if that makes sense. Do you want to hear just just a second or two? I'm I'm good. I can imagine list. it and I can check it out later. OK, fine. It's not going to come over well on the, no, it won't. <laughs> on the microphone. <laughs> I was just going to put it next to the microphone. Rayodin and Hraithen. Oh, this show is going great, folks. 45 minutes in. Oh, no, it's going well. I guess Rayodin is my natural, like... Raythan seems like the tertiary character very, very clearly. Whereas Rayodin and Serini kind of fight for first place in the main character kind of duel. In my mind. Sure. Does that, is that fair? I feel like they both get more page time. They do get more page count for sure. I think that they're all three. I'd call them all three main characters for I sure. That I, I totally agree. They're, the they're all are. definitely the main characters, but I, I feel like those two overshadow Rathan. I think especially because they're obliquely protagonists. We also pay a little bit more attention to them as well. They're, they're given a little bit more time. They're so directly connected as well. Yes, right, right. Versus Raithen mostly exists to, I mean, to to give us different lens and perspective on the rest of the world, but then also to interface kind of with those different characters one at a time because he interfaces with Serini up front in the first part, and then in the second part he's left in the in Elantris and kind of serves as this, this quote proof quote that people can be cured of their disease by believing in Shudareth. That's um, such a crazy reveal <laughs> mm-hmm. like that was so well done it caught me off guard truly so crafty so cool that he that he poisoned that he went from potentially poisoning serini that was his original plan to like get the poison to get her out of the way and instead realizing that hey wait i can instead use this as a tool to convert people because they'll see me go in but like my my thought when he first ordered the poison wasn't even for Serini. Diloff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, oh, he's gonna take out take out Diloff. Fuck. Mm. Sweet. And instead Fuck it this was, guy. Yeah. It was just a sideways motion. Diloff is a piece of shit. Holy crap. Um, oh man. Diloff is a vile villain as well. Like incredibly well written because he is he's incredibly suspicious and like, you know that he's not a good person, but at the same time, you just see that as like a commit, a committal to faith in a way. Like he's just committed to the faith of Shu Diroth so deeply that he's been corrupted. And so also Hraithan has to play this like semi-political game to keep him in place using the religious structure. It's so, it's so good. He comes across as an extremist. Mm hmm. Right. And in reality, he is a mastermind mm-hmm. and an extremist. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, well, he's truly embodying it. So there's a question of whether or not it, you know, 
if it is yeah. extremism or if instead it's been tampered down in other sects and other places of people that have been trained, you know? Yeah. My, my first read through and mm-hmm. I didn't get through an entire second read through, but I like reapproached a bunch of different sections and then got through, I think a full additional half read through. But my first experience with the book was when the Elantrian was brought in and he's like set up to like give this empowering speech to like rile up the crowd. And then he turns and basically calls for, for a riot and is super just over the top. My impression of it having not like, I'm trying to put myself in that headspace. Can I, I can't, explicitly remember exactly what I was feeling, but I I know I was in the position where I thought that he was straight up disregarding orders. Mm -hmm. I think so too. I think he was entirely trying to do that to intentionally disregard orders. I think he was intentionally trying to like go above and beyond what was actually asked of him, but I don't think he actually explicitly did anything like, I don't think he went against any orders. The I only think thing he, just, he did wrong is disobeying Horathan by skirting what he said. That's what that's ultimately the the sort of disapproval that Horathan embodies is because he does take it a step further by twisting his words, which is a very common thing that Diloff does in this book. Yeah, but I, I guess that's where I'm coming from is mm-hmm. reapproaching it and listening to it again. It, it there is no contradiction there. He's not. He he's working within the letter of the of the words. Yes. But he's contradicting his Yeah, like what what's it called? What is he to Horathan? He is his I gotta remember what it's called. Because there's Vern. It's there almost to the point of malicious compliance. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's that's a great way to put it is it is like a malicious compliance. My first read through, I'm like, oh, he's just in a position where he can do whatever he wants. And it's like, what are you going to do? Call him out his on it. Odive. Like, he makes him his odive, which is like a servant through religion. So it's like he's bouncing around as this odive. He's like bouncing around what he's saying. Yeah, because I was I was so bought in on Rathen's perspective. Mm-hmm. I saw it as a transgression where in reality it was m- sort of taking liberties within the letter of the laws laid out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from Horathan's perspective, it is a transgression. Like it right. is, it is something that goes completely against what he ended. Mm-hmm. So yeah, fuck. I really like this book in case that wasn't obvious. Like, I this book is a lot more fun in conversation than it is strictly to read because a lot of the concepts are high level and fun to extract from the text and it's a, it's a good read but it is one that is a little bit tough at times to fully parse and like get through I think at three and a half times speed you probably had a pretty good time with it I had a pretty good time with it I you know in the end I probably give this book an eight out of ten but I, I would give it bad marks for like language and like, you know, some weirdly specific stuff like that. But overall, the the total proposition of this story is incredible, including the way that we explore Elantris religion, magic and politics. 
I think eight out of 10 makes a ton of sense. And mm-hmm. I take into consideration the fact that I'm listening at like a way faster rate than normal. The parts that got conf- like it, it got frustrating for me. The fact that I was listening at such a high speed is a lot of the times I was working. So then I'd get mm-hmm. like distracted working on some email chain or some question or whatever. And I'm still technically listening. And then I'm like, Oh fuck, I don't know what's going on. And it's been like five or six chapters (laughs) Mm -hmm. because these, like there's how many pages in this book? I mean, it's hard to tell because I mean, I want to say it's like 400, whatever, call it 500 chapters. And there's more than 50, or 500 pages and more than 50 chapters. Like the chapters are very, very quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the most part. And do you colo them all? Do I colo them all? Yeah. Galadon, man. This I'm, like Galadon's Jindo language. Do you like colo is like, okay. Or do you understand? Like, okay. I didn't quite take it as understand. I took it as more of a, like, I, I, I mean, conversationally yeah i guess yeah right yeah. but it's not I, I mean, a one-to-one translation yes of- yes it's mostly mostly just because it's typically at the end of a sentence he'll say like colo and it's like yeah okay do you get it kind of but yeah so it's probably I, wrong I, to put in the middle of the sentence but i know reminds me of it Grok. Is, it's strictly a like a figment of the way that the audiobook is read but it it is such cholo Mexican vibes. There is something to be said about the way that Brandon even has approached this book in conversation, which is to say that he uses some dialectic and even some like racial stereotypes incorrectly. And he like he addresses that very directly in a couple of different interviews and conversations, specifically as it pertains to Galadon as a character, as it combines a lot of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But that said, I think Galadon is still easy takeaway. One of my favorite, favorite characters. Oh yeah, um, for sure. I love him. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just, I worry that most of my perception of him is tainted because of the way the audiobook narrator portrays him. He kind of, in, in the way that he's portrayed inside the book, he kind of comes off Jamaican. That was my, I don't know if that was your takeaway, but that no, was I, I got sound. like LA Cholo that- Mexican. Okay. Straight I didn't up. get that. I got I got Jamaican as like a borrowed from an island kind of it, it a lot of it kind of felt of that nature. Mm-hmm. I I could see that. Also, yeah. I'm approaching it at 3x speed. That performance is so different than what you probably experienced. You yeah, you I think at a certain point you start to lose performance and you're just hearing words, which is good well, like you still but get the, some, but you still get performance, but it's, it's, it's warped. So I got like, right. Colo, mm-hmm. like, it, like Suli, Colo, mm-hmm. like it, it comes right. across not the same, <laughs> like in that cadence, it, it mm-hmm. feels completely different than I think the intention. That's fair. So I know that's on me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all good. I, I'm not I don't blame you. I just wanted to bring up Galadon at the very least and say, you know, how much I how much I like and appreciate the character. I and, love. But mm-hmm. also I we had a conversation about this in the discord a little bit about casting. 
and like mm-hmm. who what Galadon looks like because it, it felt pretty ambiguous, but there is strictly a a description for him. And he is a dark skinned, large, muscular man. With silvery skin, but I think silvery skin can fit on anyone. He dark metallic silver skin, which is what happens to anyone with a Wandrian with being taken by the shade. They're all kind of gifted that silvery skin with splotchy face face complexion. I don't um, think it even technically says silvery when it, it first describes uh, him. It no, says not when it first describes him, but later it describes him with silvery skin just to That's towards know. the end. Yes. It is towards when, the end. When they've become sort of radiant again. Yes. Yeah. Repairing the, you're right. You're right. When they repair the Elantrian magic, otherwise they're kind of pallid, right? So they're washed Mm -hmm. out because they don't, their heart isn't pumping. And so they aren't getting blood to their face. So instead they're white. Yeah. Or, but you know, not, they aren't white, but they're paler pallid. Like I was saying. Whereas I think where we landed as a sort of conversation point, or if you were to cast Galadon, Tyler Perry, I think makes a ton of sense. I think that would be a great casting. I think I would love Tyler Perry in the role because I think he also hits on the humor perfectly. I think he could perfectly deliver. He would make an incredible Galadon. Side note, Tyler Perry in all of the serious roles that he's ever been in has been my favorite actor on screen. When he shows up in Gone Girl as the lawyer, he is the best person on the screen for the entirety of his performance in that movie. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyone who discounts Tyler Perry's acting, I just think is a fool. Give me more Tyler Perry. Yeah, more Tyler Perry, please. (laughs) But yeah, I totally agree with you there. So I feel like we'll talk more about Raiden as we get get into it. I think we hit on Ray. But so while the story obviously centers on these characters that we've been talking about, perhaps the grandest character of the novel itself is the city of Elantris. Originally, this book was titled The Spirit of Elantris. Actually, even before that, if you remember from the the beginning epilogue, it was called The Spirit of Adonis. And what what Brandon Sanderson didn't realize because he didn't have a whole ton of like Greek experience with with anything is that everyone like read the book and they're like, okay, but why'd you use Adonis? Why are you calling out to like this very specific image of a Greek person? And Brandon went, what? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) That was unintentional. So he renamed it Elantris. And then people were like, well, the spirit of Elantris is funny because it's kind of like Rayodin's name to a T and it's just too much. And so you just cut it down to Elantris. So here we are with the book itself. Yeah, it's, it's very funny. But within these walls before the, the Rayod and the, the, you know, live the Elantrians that were taken by the Shayod, they're regular people who live within proximity because as we find out the magic of, of Elantris itself, not necessarily the whole world, but of Elantris is one of proximity of dominion of area. And, you know, there's this mortal race of Elantrians within the city that are kind of like demigods or angels, depending on how you approach it. And depending on the religious interpretations of the religions in the world, fascinating they're they're superhuman beings claimed and changed by magical means in the flashback section or descriptions by others that we see it's depicted as kind of this super the super city that is this utopia of sorts what'd you make of the city and its subsequent fall and kind of its place inside of the story i just feel i feel a loss with it like okay. I, I feel a sorrow that i don't get to experience it at its height and it at mm. its at its radiant beauty of 
all these intricate buildings. Everything is carved so beautifully and intricately as it's described. But there's these these libraries and these just all of these buildings that have crumbled and been collapsed. They're still there for the most part, but but some for the most part, but not all of them. Right. So for the most part, like you can restore this, Mm -hmm. but the people aren't there as they were. And all of the buildings aren't there as it was. And it's always going to have that level of taint to it. Mm -hmm. That's never going to be able to be, Unless we go back in time and and see it from a like an origin origin perspective, but but it's such an interesting place. That's I really, why I love the I really love cover it. of this book so much. Is that visualization of this like truly grand and massive city that it is? Even on the map, when you when you flip open the book and you you stare at that map a little bit. You can tell like how big it is in comparison to Kai and like how how the shape of it is so important and like critical even in in the way that it impacts the magic. It's just it is overall fascinating and very cool. I love the idea of the way that this is laid out like that emblem and even as you like stare at the original map, you can see that scar that was missed from the earthquake that happened. And I just, it's, it's so smart that it's incorporated into the immediate map that you see when you open the book. Where and is like that the scar? answer is secretly there. So it's dividing it's where the earthquake was. Right. And I think it's sneaking up on one of the edges. Sorry. I just closed this again. So I see the uh, river do, that do, goes do, underneath. Yeah. So isn't it the stuff that goes into, okay. So let me see here. Elantris is there. Isn't the earthquake scar one that goes. So it's in the bottom here near Thai, south of Kalti, right? Oh, I'm looking, I'm looking at the city. Oh no, no, no. I'm talking about, so yeah, he dashes through to like correct that, which is one that runs basically north to south, right? As you move through the city. But on top of that, he's following. So on the big map, are you you looking at this one? I'm looking at the big map, yes. Here. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But it also follows the lake down to like all Alano because that's where like he's drawing the line between because it's also that that like river line or what have you. Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting the hyper specifics because I didn't make it all the way through the book on a second read before we jumped into this, but I did take copious notes on my first pass. All good. This is my first time looking at these maps. Okay. Because I didn't realize there were maps. That's fair. In truth be told, I did tell you to skip it when it comes to Red Rising because it felt well, very necessary to do so. I didn't even think of them. Like, fair I didn't enough. think. You also to. didn't have the book when you started, so. That's what I'm saying. Like, after I got yeah. the book, I just opened it up to wherever I was chapter 19 or something Mm -hmm. i think chapter 19 is the weirdly long one yes yeah oh no it's just 12 pages what's 12 pages chapter 19 wait why was that a question because i i thought it was like a weirdly long Mm. chapter but it's not there is one around there that's much longer which i think is when Din is making is it the chapter on rayodin in the past 
that's very long when he's talking about like how he was brought to Elantris and healed, I think is a very long chapter. I'm There's a couple sure. of those. I, I love it. I don't, I don't give a shit. I had, I know that a lot of people complain about pacing in this book. As far as I've read, I have no problem with pacing in this book is a okay. I appreciate the whole thing. I really don't have a huge problem with anything. The only thing as previously mentioned that I had slight issues with were the similarity of names in Serenity's court that she was dealing with. It was very hard to keep those separate because they all felt a little bit milk toasty in how close they were to each other. That's fair. Just hard to track needed to be a little bit more well-defined outside of the old man of whom was very interesting and the obviously the dashing person of whom was doing practicing martial arts, the Jindo martial art Chen Shei, I believe. But that guy that was training the women. So those that was kind of my my only thing. Right. Any other thoughts on Elantris, the city itself, as we've been chatting? I wish there was more of an exploration of the city itself. Sure. Because we we get stuck within the perspective of the characters that are there, but we and and we get sort of a peripheral understanding of the scale and size of the city, but we don't get anybody going and like actually exploring the city in its like outer reaches. We just mm-hmm. get kind of the central section where all the action is happening. Yeah. Yeah, we do get kind of tertiary exploration and explanation kind of of the city through the gangs and the parts of the city that they live in. But to your point, we don't see as much exploration of the city itself. What's really interesting is the way that this story resolves is with the Lantris restored. And I don't think it's as interesting post restoration. You know what I mean? Like I still, I still want to see, you know, bits and pieces, but I think that you could also spend too much time dwelling on this sort of perfect kingdom now. So I'd imagine the eventual sequel to Elantris will be in a different area and likely focus around different characters that were touched upon in these novels. Yeah. Like maybe Keine's children or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Right. Right. I love the way that the world is also coded in like the, the shit that it is like the, the sludge that they have to clean off of things and this idea of the effort that it takes that obviously starts to like rally this group of people around him to really kind of cover and help uncover the city and build a civilization in a group that could actually survive within the walls of Elantris trying to kind of reclaim what was there before. I think it just represents the the like hard work that it takes to actually live despite being dead. Like there's a great metaphor there despite being declared dead or like said that you're you're at the end of your rope. You've got this like chance to still live and and work for it. Yeah. There's hope. Got I, you know. I had I had a a talking point on this. And I've lost it. I had mm. it. I was ready. Shit. I mean, doesn't Rayodin's name literally stand for hope? Like, isn't it? Um, or spirit, excuse me. Spirit. It stands for yeah. spirit, which that's, I guess that's something that I really figured Serini would key in on. Yeah, that's the one moment of like character dumb that I had a tough time believing, but it's because she's from Teod, right? And so she isn't trained in the the same sort of 
alphabet that those of Erlon are. And she had no way of having an inkling of an understanding that he would have been brought there. Alive. That he was turned into an Elantrian. Yeah. 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 I had such a good point. I had such a good conversation point, man. What was it around? I don't even remember. Oh, no. I, like, I, it is gone. Lantris, the sons of Kine. The children of Kine, rather. It was right after the children of Kine. The name Raoden, cleaning out the city. The sort of hope that that inspires through work. Drawing an allusion to cancer survivors. I can't remember. Okay. But turning... So, the idea of Raoden creating these this farm, essentially, to feed mm-hmm. the people of Alondris. That was another kind of sticking point of scale for me. Because I know there's a very limited number of Laundrians. And I know they have space, but like, how do they have enough space for feeding that many people? Or how big is the city actually? Like, that was another like confusing point for me. Is how many people are there? Are they able to effectively harvest all of this food? What's going on? Is is the city kind of sectioned off and a lot of it's vacant? I think a lot of it is vacant or a lot of people have been collected into the groups of Hoed, right? The the people of whom have been damaged to a point of where their minds are no longer there. So I, I want to say that that's kind of a big thing. And it's not to say that the singular farm scale wise, that the singular farm could have fed everyone. But the idea was to bring people together to prove that it could be done in the first place so that they could expand and do more and more and more. I think that was kind of my thought on the purpose was, you know, we're we're immortal. We're all in pain. All it takes is time and caution to like get us to a place where we could live without accidentally turning into Hoed or or trying to fight each other for limited resources to survive. That's fair. That's a good way to look at it. Okay. So I, I think to your point, I I think that there is a, there is still a scale question, but I think among the three gangs, it felt like a lot of those were minimized in part because of how much they fought in part because of the number of Hoed that exist inside of the city in general. So I think our catch-all excuse here is, well, most of the population is Hoed because they didn't know what the fuck was going on in the beginning when the Rayod hit. Fair. Yeah, when the Rayod hit the Shayod and they became the Hoed, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. That's where anyone listening who hasn't read this book just nods <laughs> and tries to move on. That's where um, people that have read this book nod and say, uh-huh. <laughs> which one of those is which? You know, it's a fair point. It's a fair... It's a fair thing. Hmm. It is. There becomes a certain point when words can be overused in fantasy novels, even though they're relevant or even I think part of it is just that these words are so similar because of the word structure that he developed being kind of the beginning and end of words and how they combined through, you know, Aeon door to form a phrase. It makes it very hard to parse or piece them out. Mm-hmm. it does this is why language craft is such a 
especially fantasy language craft is such a talent. I forget the guy that they like handled or that they hired to do all the languages in Lord of the Rings, but he or not in the Lord of the Rings. Excuse me. I think he also did the work in the Lord of the Rings, but in Game of Thrones did a miraculous job of constructing spoken languages. Mm hmm. So. I'd be curious what he actually did in Lord of the Rings if he was involved, because those were pretty. I think the biggest thing was working out pronunciations for people, like more that vocal coaching than anything else. Makes sense. And some some written stuff, I'm sure, like constructing props so that they made sense. Because he was a student of language first and then like, a, you know, how do we translate? I forget his name. I'll have to look it up because it was very interesting. Great, great YouTube video on the whole thing. So with that, talking about Elantris, we move into Serini's plot. We've already talked about, you know, kind of the Court of Nobles, but Uncle Keine, I think, is great from a character perspective. I think the eventual reveal of, of Uncle Keine is fascinating as we get these stories of Driok Crushthroat through a number of other characters and perspectives. And we're, we're with this, like, joyous cavax like uncle that is just this That's this ball of fun and he uh, he ends up being this like big pirate legend of of kind of yore and i just think that's such a cool reveal and moment within within the story of serini is that i don't want that to undermine the whole point but what do you think of serini's plot of the triad uh, beginning to end what'd you make of hers what do you mean of the triad so the triad is her Rayodin and Hraithan. Right, but okay. They all feed into one end. I, all that I'm saying is like, would you make of her chunk of the plot? Gotcha. Okay. I was trying to like figure out what's her, what's her conscious play of fusing these three, but no. No, um, she's no. Yeah. I think she is the most satisfyingly competent character that I've read in a very long time hmm. in that she is self-aware and like it's a given that she's intelligent. We understand that she's intelligent. We understand that she's cunning and able to kind of tamper expectations and read, read the room, read the whoever she's trying to deceive. Iodon namely, in, in this book, but is also like multifaceted in all of her decision-making talking to her father about why she can't come back home. Right. And the, the reasons are simultaneously and mo like importantly in both respects, political and personal. And even even dropping one of them, she'd probably still make the same decision to satisfy the other. She she is a very com complicated person, but in a way that's not inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Her complications and the way that all of her information is revealed is very upfront and understandable and heartbreaking at times. But... I don't know if there's a single point in this book where I was, where I wasn't like rooting for her, you know? Yeah. I, I guess there's never, there's never a turn to the negative or like any, any sort of, there's never a, 
she's never at a low point in that way. She's never at a point in which I don't feel like she is consumed by her convictions or is turned away from her convictions. She never really has a, a question of faith in her ability to do what she wants so much as she instead is trying to figure out how to overcome walls like King Iodon, I think is one of the best examples in kind of the way that he is a piece of shit, among other things that kind of hit similar notes and timbres. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's a great way to think about it. Working off of that, she's very obviously the protagonist or one of the protagonists of this, of this story. But at the same time, none of it feels unearned. And none of it, Not at all. none of it feels like she's the good person. So we should believe her and we should agree with her. It's all, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And this is why. And that, that proves her to be the protagonist. Like it's kind of backwards from what you'd expect from a character like this. Whereas like we're not given, like there's no benefit of the doubt to begin with. She is genuine and good from the start. Right. Which is fun. Which which makes for, it, it can make for a character that I think is a little bit plain, but I think she's confronted with enough challenges that it makes her very interesting. Like, it, it does give her, like like we've said before, she doesn't necessarily have a strict path of growth, but she does progress the story. She's not stuck, and she does through her actions make progress. So it's she herself isn't necessarily growing, but there is growth around her that we see through her political moves. She's the, her... the catalyst for change. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, while she herself doesn't change, her ability to exert her influence does. And I think that that is in and of itself compelling. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why despite what I would generally cite as a character negative. <laughs> she is still a very compelling character. Yeah, it would. I don't know how, like, I, I don't know how it doesn't come across as flat mm-hmm. or as, as just, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally agree. But my favorite plot of the story to counter that is is Hraithen. I think Hraithen is such an incredible character. I love his entire path, poisoning himself, like we said earlier, to fall into Elantris, a ploy he'd originally thought to do to Sereni, and then Diloph really kind of solidified it. He'd kind of bounced back and forth on where he was going to go with this, but turned to Diloph as the ultimate foil here to receive the poison eventually. He makes it out later, of course, which kind of gives this proof of faith and this sort of stance of heroicism for his religion as he was chosen by Wern to be this champion of Shudareth. And the the whole thing just reads, it makes for such an interesting turn because he has this fantastic foil in Diloph of whom is an extremist, kind of like we painted him earlier, and is at the same time a mirror through which Hraithen eventually views himself as he kind of thinks about the changes in the religion and, and the extremes to which the religion is going to do these things. And he's also seeking, I think at first he's seeking vindication, but I think he's also seeking forgiveness for what he did to the Jindo people as he conquered them through war because he failed through the diplomatic means. So it feels as though He's trying to redeem himself at the same time and do better this time around, despite right. believing that what was done before was right, even though 
he later comes to realize that it wasn't. I just think he's a fascinating character, man. He is. He's uh, a very fascinating character. And regarding the sort of poisoning and getting mm-hmm. dropped into Elantris, that could be seen as such a fucking gamble. Mm-hmm. And in my first my first read through, I'm like, holy shit, like that that is such a fucking gamble. But then you remember that Rathan spent a lot of time up on Elantris's walls looking in and mm-hmm. just kind of contemplating. So he completely understood the goings on within that city. So the, it, w- it was a lot more calculated than it comes across right away. It is the entire, the entire story around Wraithen is so interesting because it also, we get into Diloph, we get into a lot of these things and we get into these different chunky bits. And I think that his interrogation of religion is so fascinating because to me, it also is the closest so far as we've read that gets to interrogating this idea of going somewhere else to convert someone, which feels distinctly Mormon. And it feels as though Brandon is kind of commenting on the way that this is a sort of cultural invasion and can be a cultural invasion and can be incredibly negative if not handled correctly as he uses kind of the past example of the Jindo. And again, don't want to speak for Brandon, but this is what I see from from an outside perspective versus what he would consider to be like a proper conversion, you know, under under the faith. And I, I think that that's so fascinating. And I think that's also why he's so hard on Diloph, despite Diloph also just being a bad actor inside of this, this situation to begin with. So yeah. Yeah. Ooh, little tiny burp there. I don't know if you heard that. I got a little bit of pineapple. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the fun things about this story is that it is steeped in magic. It, It truly like there, there's magic everywhere and not all of it is fully explained. You know, we, we get a lot of different versions of the magic. We get this, futuristic AI like Seons that we haven't even really talked about and and kind of their attachment and detachment from people as they died or were also affected by the the Rayod. We have the door, which is this missing connection from Aeons, of which were magically painted in the air, and this sort of missing magical connection that we find out later is due to the severance of Elantris from its kind of core pattern and needs to be redrawn. We have this sort of bone magic that the decor monks practice, which is fascinating. We have this sort of sacrifice that happens that leads to teleportation in the final act that seems to also be maybe from the the blood magic. There, there's just so much here that points to magic based on a combination of like faith on area, which I think is so interesting, right? Like magic derived from faith makes some sense it's kind of a thing that's talked about often and you know kind of the way that fantasy systems do but like magic based on proximity to something or like your your powers being based on proximity to something that is magical like a focus is is not wholly unique but in the way that it's pulled off in this story it's totally unique is it though what do you mean i guess do you have I'm a drawing from the final not epilogue but postscript postscript little page and a half two and a half page whatever there's a pool overlooking elantris we'll talk about that in a bit we're gonna we're gonna hit pause (laughs) we'll get to that in a second i want to i want to i want to i want to just take a moment fine fuck it talk about it i think that's strictly related yeah you do 
Yeah. I okay. think that's ir- irradiating magic. But if we're ignoring that, and if we're going back to like yesterday. It's hard to not ignore it. Continue. I didn't no, expect you to draw connections. If I hadn't read that, uh-huh. going back to yesterday. I don't know. City walls. That's pretty cool. Why is Elantris? <laughs> there has to be something there. There has to be some sort of magical source that the city was built around. I don't think that the the fact that a city was built here gets it like gives it the ability to radiate magic. There has to be the source has to be somewhere and I would assume the city followed the source as opposed to the other way around. Sure. But there seems to be something about location, right? Like uh, above and beyond what you're saying, location is deemed very important on this world in the way that people of whom are taken by the Sheod and turned into Elantrians are only those of whom live or were born in proximity to Elantris itself. I guess kind of fighting against my own opinion. Mm -hmm. The Aeons that are drawn follow the map of Elantris mm-hmm. and are, are strictly based on that map, which most of that is man-made or is unnatural, right? It is forged, but it blends with the natural, with the, with the, with the earthquake and the fracture, like the fissure mm-hmm. that affects the aeons. So it is both any natural and unnatural features on the surface of the planet in that specific area that dictate the the symbols of this magic system, right? Well... Yeah, so it's based on the area, right? And so, like, the, the Aeons themselves are drawn to be representative of the area. And so that's why they were broken, right? That's the, the whole culmination of the book, is by fixing right. the base drawing that everything is based on with that simple line at the bottom of the map, everything was corrected. Yeah. But that earthquake presumably is a natural feature, whereas the rest of Elantris is, like, a man-made city. So those features are not naturally occurring and not naturally made. So it, it, it is taking, this magic system is taking from both. Yes, yes, agreed. Or is affected right. by both. Is affected by both, I, I think would be the way to say that or to point to it. I would, I would agree with that as a conclusion to be drawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the other magic system? So obviously that's Aeon Door that we're talking about right now, being the combination of the door, which is that complete symbol, and then Aeon, which is the sort of language by which one operates the power. What do you think? What What is the other system you're talking about? Well, we've got like the bone magic of the decor monks, right? Uh, that like Diloph clearly has where he kind of like supersizes himself and throws bones and grows weapons and kind of does all of that. Um, and then, then we get like potions. The potions in and of themselves are kind of a magic of sorts, yeah? I'm assuming they fall into some some magical... Spell, Probably, but. yeah, some sort of magic. Or science. Um, I mean, it could be, you know, magical science. Which is kind of Brandon Sanderson's entire yeah. bag. 
I don't have a ton of opinions because we don't get it. We don't get much in the form of explanation. You know? No, I I'm yeah. Agreed. Wait, I'm just wondering what you think about it. Like, what do you, well, I think it's kind of crazy that every planet, <laughs> every realm has a series of magic systems that are presumably different, you know, hard to ignore that. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. As a, as a thing, as a concept, it's definitely hard to ignore. I don't know beyond that though. Like, I don't know what to make of it. It doesn't seem, I guess. Did you think it was cool? Oh, <laughs> like, of course I'm, I thought I'm it was even, cool. I'm looking for base mean? shit at this point. You I thought, said you, I thought about you were it, asking so. for oh, no. like my, no, 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 my no, no. understanding mean, of it. We yes, don't of get that much cool. of an explanation. In the I book. fucking love magic systems. Yeah. And right. I'm really growing to appreciate Brandon Sanderson's like ability to create them and my trust in him to believe that it's all logical. I think that's mm-hmm. maybe weirdly, I don't know if it's weird or not, but one of my sticking points in, in magic systems is when I find points of a lack of logic or of broken rules. And I have enough good faith with Brandon that anything that comes across as a broken rule, I am confident in saying that it was just a misunderstanding and an incomplete set of rules that we were working on. So I'd like to assume that I can extend that here to this system. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but that seems to be the case. I mean, I I feel like it makes sense. I do want to bring up that I, I think that there's this big character moment here that's revealed to it's nearer to the end of the story. But as we think about the, this bone magic system, it's revealed that Prathen and anyone who goes through the Fjordel religion of Shu, Oh my God, not Kessig Shu Dareth is brought up through one of the many different schools basically underneath the religion and that he was originally a Dakor monk. And so was trained just slightly in this sort of magic and this torture and left and was broken by his own religion at that point and, and was moved into a different school, which was sort of unheard of. Mm-hmm. It's especially considering the secrecy around the Dakor. Right. Ugh. It's so complicated, even man. It's, it's deep. It's heavy. It's great. Mm-hmm. Even the like sacrifice that that one monk goes through to like sacrifice himself to teleport, like he burns himself alive to teleport them across the yeah. the ocean, right? Crazy. So it all seems to be like a trade of of oneself for something else. It seems to be kind of the way that 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 at the very least that particular piece of magic was portrayed. But mm-hmm. yeah. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but we didn't talk about it entirely. There's that cult reveal from King Iodon and man, that is a crazy twist. It brings about a very different presentation of faith in these. I think it's the Jesker mysteries is what they're called when it's revealed that he wasn't a part of Shu Kesseg as he had been originally kind of saying, and instead a member of the Jesker faith or Jesker mysteries, these, this sort of mysterious religion that no one seems to know a whole lot about outside of the fact that it involves some sacrifices that we find out is why a lot of these maids are missing and why the staff was constantly replaced inside of the, the city and. Yeah. 
I want to know how long this has been going down. Because it's mentioned to Serini that there were four girls that had gone missing in the span of the last year or this year. So whatever this calendar year is, I'd be curious if that's accelerating at this point or if it had been pretty steady. Sure. think that's a great question. I Part of me feels like it was accelerating after a core of me believes, even though it isn't explained, that this accelerated after Rayodin's death, death quote, being taken by the Sheod. So his father was doubling down on the idea of his faith and so was sacrificing women more frequently in hopes to remain in power through faith in the Jesker mysteries. That makes sense. That was my thought. It, it seems like a doubling down of devotion. Totally. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And it's a it's a crazy twist because this is this is a moment in which the story really kind of takes that uh, a sort of insane turn. This was a moment that I did not see coming in any way, shape or form, similar to what, the way that the eventual reveal of Diloph to be this sort of bone monstrosity comes about as well. Both feel horrifying in very different ways and in different ways through their religious exaltation in a way. You know what I mean? Like these are both both of these evil characters are made evil through their faith. But that really... faith is I mean exactly what <laughs> is like that faith is the opposition, you know, mm-hmm. to the rest of the story. Right. So it's kind of it's kind of a de facto antagonist for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though they're on opposite sides of the faith spectrum, the Jessica Mysteries and the Judareth, they still end up being kind of antagonists in their own right. Yeah, because they're bound together through faith. Right, right. Their own devotion bounds them together into this like negative, negative spiral. Right. Yeah. So running into kind of the end of the story here, I want to talk about the conclusion. We have the battle. We have Diloph stabbing Rayodin being brought to that silvery pool and healed, drawing the Aeon together, doing this crazy charge and kind of bringing together the Aeon door. It's a screaming conclusion that happens very, very quickly. And I, I think it's still pretty satisfyingly. It seems a little bit comparatively compared to the two books of Brandon Sanderson that you've read. I think that this one, for me at the very least, is a little bit more... It's not Deus Ex Machina, but it's a little bit more reveal, 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 shocking, reveal, shocking, reveal, shocking, reveal to like make it all come together. What would you think? I can see that, but it didn't feel egregious to me because of the shiftings in perspective. Mm-hmm. Like it, it felt like big reveals all around, but it didn't feel like there were a ton of them associated with any individual character. Yeah. And at the same time, they mostly work together as far as I can remember. You know, like it all felt fluid and it felt like these series of reveals all played off of each other. Like you couldn't have the final reveal without having the one before it and the one before that, you know? Right. So, right. They're interlocked still. Like it's still, yeah. none of it feels so far out of left field, but like, there's some moments that feel a little bit convenient, like Hraithan showing up when he needs to. Oh, um, that's yeah. That was maybe the most egregious one. I did I think, appreciate it because it is his character sacrifice moment, but it does feel 
a little immediate. I didn't like the non-specificity of the term paces when dealing with the teleportation. The teleportation. Does that mean that it is unique to each individual person or is a pace an average standard size? I think if I remember correctly that he ends up still being a little off because of the distance of paces. But he's dealing with millions of paces. It would be so far off if it was even just a little bit off, like a little bit different. I don't know. And that's and that's where I'm I'm saying, like, I think, but I don't recall. And I think with you, one would assume that it would likely be an average that would accumulate. But like you said, with with the sheer number of paces it takes to cross that boundary and the way that. One of Keon's child thinks of it is a little on the nose, a little almost Rain Man esque. And I know it's something that Brandon's talked about, the fact that he would totally rewrite that child differently if he were to reapproach the book today. Yeah. Because of that kind of comparison. So. Um, that's, my, any, any, that's my main gripe. Sure. Main gripe with the book. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty fucking small, huh? <laughs> like, you brought that's up my main gripe. Really, but yeah. I don't like the, the way that the magic system describes distance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fair. I'd say that's pretty fucking nitpicky. I mean, that's a fair point. It's a it's a fair thing. I got to say, like Diloff stabbing Rayodin feels it feels good for Diloff's character as well because Diloff is not without individual torture as a villain either. Because ultimately, he's turned on this quest because his wife was accidentally killed during an elantry and healing, right? Or like a healing went wrong or didn't right. work as effectively as it was intended to. And that was cited so, as like the first moment that realized something had changed with the Aeon, right? I don't remember if that was the realization or I don't remember. I don't remember. Or just one of the first cases. I I think that there was also a case to be made that some people didn't know it well enough and kind of faked their way through things. But I mean, from Rayodin's perspective. Sorry, I'm just double checking here. Rayodin talks about that story to Galadon. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a different story. That is that was his mother's healing. That was Rayodin's mother's healing. I was talking about Diloph's wife. I thought that I maybe I'm confusing things. Not the same story. Yeah, because I know there's the story of Rayodin being brought to Elantris and being healed as a child. But I thought there was also a story that Rayodin talked about, talking about like the point when the Aeons didn't seem to be doing what they were supposed to. That's another thing. That's something I wanted to bring up. Yeah. One of the rules and one of the like sort of parameters of working within this system of magic is intention. Yep. Like it, it's impossible to unintentionally set off a rune. How does that work when the runes change to include that fracture? Because the idea was that suddenly they're doing things and it's giving off these wrong 
effects, but part of the part of the rule is intention. So you have to be intending to have those effects, mm-hmm. or you have to be intending to build that rune. I guess I guess maybe you're intending to build that rune, and the definition of that rune changed. Yes, exactly. So precision is the other the other factor. So intent is important because that is the sort of channeling of power and you can't accidentally do it. But precision is important because Aeons don't require precision. That's why you can draw them and like they'll show up, but they won't do anything. It's Aeon door that requires precision so that you can combine them to effectively use the magic. So door is really what requires precision. So the intention is I'm intending to invoke this power, Mm -hmm. not I'm intending to build this rune. The result is based on precision. Got it. Does that make sense? That makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that's how Desperation, DLF turned to the Elantrians to heal Sila. Unfortunately, the glyph that should have healed her instead performed a partial transformation, not unlike the Rayode, leaving her in pain. So she is one of the early ones that were healed, maybe just around that, that sort of culmination, that breaking. Or it could have been a person that messed it up because they weren't as precise so it's I, it's kind of left a little bit ambiguous. I think but, I'm just misunderstanding. Like I was just misremembering what perspective we were in. Yeah, when that's that fair. Described. That's fair because it's also wasn't Rayodin's mom driven to insanity because of someone drawing an imprecise rune when she was wounded. As far as I understood, Rayodin was the one that was brought there when he was wounded. Yes, I don't remember his family members also being brought there, but I could be completely wrong. She was brought there. She wasn't. Yeah, she wasn't. She died two years after the rayout occurred. So a little bit later. Never mind. Hers was not that. I was conflating hers with Sila, Diloph's wife, which very easy to do again, because some of these women don't get a whole lot of time or attention. Effectively, our motivation for him is a is a woman that we didn't know inside of the plot. So, you know, that's a that's a thing, but it's fine. Again, it gets back to that that sort of like semi fridge thing. But Sometimes you you can't give, especially for a secret villain reveal, you can't like give. How do you bake in like a villain giving a backstory speech effectively? You know what I mean? Like, can a villain be allowed to just from the mountaintop? I declare that when my wife was afflicted with this strange disease because of the Elandrian <laughs> magic's gone wrong, I decided that I was going to infect Erlon with the religion of Shudereth and I was going to take it all over. Blah, 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 blah. I you mean, know? you can if you're either fighting James Bond. Okay. <laughs> or if you're Deckard Kane. You are tragically <laughs> correct at both circumstances. Uh good call. No notes. <laughs> but you do wanna I man, I think I praised Bourne for doing this. And I know you haven't read it, but it's just a note that happens is that one of the characters is giving like their grand speech and just gets her head bashed in with a fucking rock while trying to give a James Bond-esque speech. And it's such a good moment where it's like <laughs> Yes. I've wanted that to happen in every story I've ever heard. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Fucking do it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So this is your second series in Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere, as I'll call it. You know, this is kind of, it's it's just a one-off right now. There are short stories that take place in this world, so you can get a little bit more of it. But for those folks turning in for the first time, we're going to be talking about other books, namely Mistborn, Well of Ascension, roughly half of the Hero of Ages, based on where we're at. So... 
in case you didn't catch other warnings that we're talking about this, probably the most intense spoiler section, although I feel like we've already hit some of that. And I don't think I don't think this warning is maybe even worth it at this point. But here we are still just in case I'm going no holds bar for the rest of this with PJ. So any parallels with characters, magic, world, etc. that you want to bring up here? You already mentioned the Silvery Lake. I mean, it's a pool. Pool. Yes. I think I think it's important to call it a pool. I, yeah, it is described <laughs> as the pool. It's fine. Yes, and the size is described eerily similarly, and it's silvery, and there is almost a mist aspect to it. I thought. I think I I misinterpreted frog as fog when I'm thinking about this. <laughs> that is a like, far I, reach. I know the story. I know. I know yeah. he ate the frog, but I think when I was thinking about mist. At one point in my periphery, I saw the word fog, but it was actually frog. Yeah, it's totally frog. But that doesn't remove the fog evocation from my mind. Yeah. Drawing a parallel that doesn't exist. It's okay. Yeah. Or does exist and is shielded. Sure. Because we are in a different perspective. We are. For the first time. Maybe in a different time. Because it's not clear necessarily that it's on the same timeline. It, to me, felt in the past. Sure, know. sure. What'd you make of it, though? You gotta, you gotta give me more than. Oh no, man! <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna make such an ass of myself describing God, things I don't understand. Kind of hard not to. For whatever reason, it makes me think that this is either like I don't know one of the original or the original like magic user somehow on Scadrial or is like Rashik or something, or is it like, is one of the characters that we've dealt with or have had. Um, we've met Hoyd. We've, we've heard his Hoyd? name. Oh, we've met have, Hoyd. When? It, Oh my God, very recently, about two episodes ago. Do you remember when, so in the very beginning, in the first book, our first meeting of Hoyd is as a beggar informant to Kelsier. Oh shit. Our second meeting is as an informant to Vin that she skips based on an inkling and a suspicion in the back of her head. Oh no. Shit. Oh man. We've met Hoyd. I miss that name. I missed the name entirely. You did Both between times. the two books. I was just wondering if you were going to connect them, even within the series. Now we have a third instance, and I just cannot let you go on. No, that's fine. Knowing. It's A-OK. Oh, man. And honestly, us meet like Vin meeting or choosing not to meet Hoyd feels like the kind of connection where you would have pointed it out. Under most I circumstances. did point it out. Did you I actually? I actually almost explicitly, I guarantee you it's in my notes. I'm going to go find it real quick. Continue talking. I made a I mean, big deal of this. I mean, that's what I have, basically, uh, is I didn't make that connection. And now I feel like a dum-dum. <laughs> Mostly. But no, there's no way you pointed that out. Oh, I did. You want to, I bet Google Drive does a really good job of this. If I just type in Hoyd. Okay, HOA, was it as recent as episode five? 
void. Why'd that pick it up? It would have been four, I think. Four or five. I think it's four or three. It wouldn't have been three. Okay. (laughs) So here was the question I asked. Vin leaves and double checks her trail to make sure that something isn't following her throughout the city. She detects nothing and is on her way to visit a second informant, a beggar named Hoyd, humming to himself. She hesitates and decides to skip the meeting because something bothered her about the situation. Upon jumping around the city more to follow Set's instructions, she finds herself at the canton of research headquarters, undoubtedly where the Lord Ruler's cache would be. I mean, you pointed out that his name was Hoyd. You didn't make the connection between hit, like. Oh no, that's not my job. The- that's what I'm saying is in yeah. a lot of those circumstances where okay. I just straight up missed a previously mentioned connection like that. I feel like in a lot of those situations, you like point them out because they're, t- cause they're contextual. That's fair for me. This was more of a case of, I saw the opportunity for a connection to be drawn, but it's not my responsibility totally. to draw it. Now it is. Because now there's enough for me to be like, okay, it's irresponsible for me to not like make mention of this. That to say, there are many of our fans and listeners as we as I went through the series even and was reading through that didn't catch these connections. So you are not alone in in not picking this up. And I think the entire point, I think Brandon said this a lot kind of early on, is that these early books, a lot of the connections are meant to be Easter eggs, not necessity to right. catch or understand kind of meta plot and are gra- will gradually become more and more important, but are not core to understanding the story. So, but this little bit at the end does feel like it's a big tease. So I don't want to, you know, skip out on giving you access yeah. to all of the other information at this point. The time before that, that we talked about Hoyd was in chapter is in Mistborn episode five, roughly chapter 19. Yeah. I said, and then there was Hoyd. What do you make of Hoyd? The information he shares here with Kelsier, that of Ilario's secret relationship, as well as the deal with House Hastings. And they kind of like have a lecture back and forth and Hoyd gets afraid because he's a beggar. Yep. Yeah. Oh, fuck, dude. That's okay. Shit. Now it's like, I thought your entire point on like wanting to approach this was the pool itself. Hmm. Not the character uh, poor K Nolos dos <laughs> i mean it can't be both i think it's very clearly both at this point but it's got a whole lot more complicated it did didn't it? uh-huh i was ready to call him like kelsier which would have been cool i think what's interesting is that he goes into this pool dressed as a beggar understanding that that it's a disguise at that point as opposed to going and then changing there so what does that mean? Does it mean anything? Probably not. How quickly can he move to and fro? Hmm. So that's a Hoyd you. comparison. Yeah, that's that's a Hoyd comparison. It's okay. I'm not fully restricting you from reading these books. Just kidding. I am. So that's a Hoyd comparison. What about the pool? So the pool is clearly working as a portal, but I think is also the source of magic. Okay. The font of magic. And I would probably believe that it's all the same magic. It's just manifesting itself in different ways between the, between the worlds. I think if we were to break down the different magics that are described here, they would have a one-to-one correlation between allomancy, barochemy, and humilergy. Like There's the bone magic, which seems like a very... <laughs> clear 
comparison to hemallergy just from its subject matter, the drawing of aeons. I don't know. I don't know enough about the mechanics of how that works and where that's sourced where that's sourced from, but it feels more ferrochemical because like and treats the the city itself or the the relation to the pool as the the thing that's being drawn from. And then okay. I can't remember what the other one was because I don't think it's ever actually described. The Aeon, the Aeon door. I think even Sean Shea is described as magic, the sort of martial arts that okay. some people it's for some people it's magical and for others it's more of just a practice. But so there's like there's Kung Fu arguably four systems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I I would believe that one of those is just the application of the same magic system. Sure. I don't know. I'm I'm operating under the assumption that the magic is distributed in the same way or in the same not the same way, but there are one to one comparisons on the way that it's distributed between worlds because I think they're all physically connected. Like this pool is the same pool or the opposite reflection of that pool on the different worlds. So in that respect, I think they're all connected. I think that this pool is the connection between this world and Scadrial. And then the other pool that I'm hypothesizing exists goes to the other world. And then there's maybe another pair of pools between the world we're in and that one. There's, I don't know. Gotcha. So you're saying Cell, which is the world we're in, Nalthus, which is the world that's talked about inside of this novel, and Scadrial are connected via pools. You're supposing that there's a pool, a second pool on Scadrial. And that works as a tunnel between it and you just Nalthus. said it. Yeah. Nalthus. So it's like, it's a tunnel system. It's a portal <laughs> tunnel system. Okay. Love a good portal fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Need more. Need more. But that's where I'm at. All right. Well, I can't promise more right now. But yeah, but you could. We'll get there. I could, you could confirm or deny to you that there's more. But you're not. I gonna. could confirm or deny that, but nope. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll promise you at some point you'll know everything that everyone else knows. So I'll at some it. point soon <laughs> we'll be caught up. Within by the end of 2023, we should be fully caught up with everything published. So. It's my goal. Including the four books that'll come out in 2023? We're doing those as short pours, so yeah. Oh, right. Yep. Yep. I think that makes sense. Quart pours. Quart pours. Cool. (laughs) All right, man. Well, any other thoughts on Elantris that you want to get out here into the world? Any of the books? Anything we missed? Anything else? I'll be rereading it. Like, I know that. I'm very intrigued by the story. Yeah. Looking forward to more of it. Cool. But beyond that, no, I think I think we had a good good run of it. All right. Well, I'm very excited for the future to continue down the Cosmere path and everything else. I do at some point in the near future 
now that you're done with this, I would like for you to read Emperor's Soul at some point. That's inside of the short story collection that you have behind you, as well as it's inside of our Audible account. But uh, I think that's a really great read. I highly recommend anyone who's read this book or hasn't even to read that short story. It is the one that Brandon Sanderson won the Hugo for, and it is, I think, perhaps my singular favorite piece of his work. But needless to say, it's very good. Highly recommend it. Now that you're done with Elantris, it's kind of open season. If you like it, we'll cover it on a show. But, you know, Perfect. I really, yeah, whatever, however we feel about that. You can also read The Hope of Elantris now that's open to you because that is effectively another perspective on the end of Elantris. So. so I think that means there's only a few that I can't read. You cannot read any of the ones that take place in Scadriel, of which there are three. There are you cannot read the final story, which takes place in a different world. That I'm, I mean, you you're looking at the title page, so I'm sure you see the name. It doesn't really matter. It's just the title of a world, Roshar. But I think everything else is. Fine. I'm just going to real quickly double check. I'm pretty sure those are the only restrictions. What's it called? What's the book called? Arcanum Unbounded? Yep. Just double check. I think you're good. Tell the next of dusk. Yeah. So nothing in the Skadrian system and nothing in the Rosharan system. Okay. So basically nothing pertaining to Mistborn and nothing pertaining to that other series in Roshar. And there's Sounds no Nolthian in short stories, so you're good there. Yeah, so most of that book is free season. Maybe we'll just do a bonus episode that could be covering some short stories. That'd be fun. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for listening to our show. Be sure to check us out on social media, as mentioned basically every episode. We've got a lot of, a lot of stuff coming out on our Atomic Pylon Media Network. You can find us at Atomic Pylon right? Atomic Pylon Media. Yep. On Instagram and Twitter and Facebook? No Facebook yet, but eventually. No Facebook yet. We have Facebook for words and whiskey. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Instagram and Twitter at Atomic Pylon Media is where you're going to find all of the information for these subsection and spinoff podcasts of words and whiskey. As well as yeah. other shows like Pod. Yes, very exciting to talk about all of these different shows and, and whatnot. Make sure that you check out Tales of Kana as well at Catacomb Party. That's one of our newest, our newest, most recently, recently launched show. Jesus. Yeah, very excited for everything that is to come. With that, I do want to make mention next month, we are going to be having a very, very, very special episode on Short Pours. So... <laughs> With that, make sure that you check out all of our links inside of the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, and our website and our socials all in one convenient spot. Beyond that, check out the other shows like we were saying. Follow us, Words Whiskey Pod, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. That's where you can find us, of course. That's where you can support us here. And, of course, listening along to our regular main weekly show where currently and for the next for the next year and a half, we're going to be talking about Brandon Sanderson. So... If you liked this or even slightly enjoyed it, come check us out. Yeah. You are all wonderful, beautiful people, and it 
really means the world to us that such wonderful, beautiful people seem to like our stuff. So I'm excited to see you all next week. Yes. Sounds good. See you soon.